Blog Talk Radio. The opinions and views expressed by the host and guest are not necessarily the views and opinions of the Blake Radio Network. Broadcasting, broadcasting, broadcasting to the world. Broadcasting to the world, to the world, to the world. BlakeRadio.com. Music for your mind, body, and soul. Dr. Jennifer Daniels, and you're listening to Healing with Dr. Daniels on the Blake Radio Network, Rainbow Soul. Okay, and it is Tuesday, October 21st, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, and tonight's topic is, how can 700,000 physicians be wrong? How could this number of physicians be engaged in the murder of upwards of 880,000 Americans? They must be doing something wrong. So tonight I'm going to show and reveal how educated surgeons, super subspecialists, and well-meaning doctors become murderers so that you can escape the murderous medical climate that we live in. And remember, think happens. So i got to tell you how I got the idea for this show. A friend of mine was visiting from the United States. And he's a businessman, and we have a friend in common who's a doctor, a highly trained doctor. Actually, he's an ophthalmologist, and he also trains in neurosurgery as well. Very, very well trained. And so we were discussing uh, this person's philosophies about various things. He said, but you know, Jennifer, how come he doesn't seem to understand how doctors are killing people? I mean... This person is now doing acupuncture. He's very highly trained in lots of things. And so he wants to go from doing acupuncture back to doing standard medicine, of course, surgery, naturally. And so the question or the confusion on the part of my uh, guest, who's a businessman, was why go back to medicine if everybody knows that medicine is deadly and that you're actually trained to kill And so I said to him that it's entirely possible that his friend is not aware of the true deadly nature of medicine and how profound and pervasive the problem is. And so he said to me, Jennifer, I I don't don't get it. I don't see how that could be. And I said, you know what? I need to do a show about that. That's what I got to do. I got to do a show about that. So in order to understand how 
such a highly trained person. I mean, this guy is an ophthalmologist, neurosurgeon, he's trained in acupuncture. How could he not know? How could he not know? So this is what happened in medical school. We go all the way back to medical school because in order to not know, you have to miss the whole thing in medical school. And so I, I honestly believe that a master marketer maybe even Bernays himself designed the medical school curriculum and whole approach to things. So the first thing happened in medical school. I show up in medical school, and I got my mind made up. I mean, I got my mind made up. I'm going back to the ghetto. I'm opening an office, and I'm taking care of my friends, family, and neighbors, and anyone else who wants to show up. That's what I'm going to do. I'm not making any waves. I'm just That's what I'm going to do. And so obviously... If that's what I want to do, I've got to specialize, if you want to call it that, either in general medicine or family practice. It's very, very straightforward. And so every time they would teach something in medical school, I would ask myself, how is this going to help Uncle Joe? How is this going to help my neighbor down the street? How is it going to help my mother's crushing headaches how is it going to help dad's diabetes? How is it going to help my brother's mild schizophrenia? How is it going to help all of these people I knew who were suffering from various afflictions? And then I would ask the question, if I did this for Uncle Joe or whoever, I really do have an Uncle Joe, by the way, how would this work? Would Uncle Joe still be my friend? Would I still be welcome at Thanksgiving if I did what they just said for me to do? And what I noticed is with alarming frequency, I would think, oh, man, oh, I don't think that would play very well at all with Uncle Joe. Woo, uh, well, that wouldn't help mom's headaches, not one whit. And so we were doing things that would teach us these protocols, and they would explain these protocols to us, and when you go into the clinic and you see these protocols in action, you see that nobody gets relief. And so you administer this drug, people don't get relief, and they immediately move on to the next step, which is a more expensive test. And it keeps going and going and going. I'm like, whoa, 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 stop, stop, stop. You broke the bank two steps ago. So I was concerned about this. So I would ask questions. And, the, and, because, and I had total and complete faith in medicine, so I had no doubt that this was going to work. So I would say, well, uh, how do we get this to work? Or, or when is this going to work? And they'd say, well, Dr. Downs, this is about this is about good skits. I said, well, whoa, it's just not good enough. So I went to the dean of students. I said, well, well, you know, I'm going back to the ghetto, and I need something more effectiveness because if if I do the stuff that you're training me to do then I'm going to be in trouble. My life is going to be in danger. My neighborhood won't stand for this level of damage and non-results. And so he said, well, you did good this to me. He says, well, you know, you don't have to go back to your neighborhood. You could always practice someplace else. I said, practice someplace else? What are you going to practice someplace else? People are still going to be damaged. They're still going to be harmed by what I'm being taught. They're not going to get better. How is that going to solve anything? 
well, you know, he, I guess he must have at that point thought that I was pretty stupid <laughs> and dense because he thought my problem was that I was not able to harm people and be physically safe. And so his solution, of course, was to practice in a different environment among people who would allow me to harm them and would not retaliate with physical uh, means. Of course, I thought the problem was that what I was being taught was not effective and I needed something more effective. And so, of course, the conversation went nowhere. I didn't think he understood my question, and he didn't think I understood his answer, and we were both right. So at the end of another semester of watching this mayhem, I went back to the dean of students. His name was Fred. I said, Fred, it's Jennifer. No, hi, Jennifer. I said, Fred, I've still got that problem, Fred. Fred, the stuff I'm seeing is just not working. I, I cannot take this back to my neighborhood. Um, and I'm, you know, going into family medicine, and I'm not going to be making a lot of money, and that's okay, but I need something effective. And so Fred says, well, Jennifer, you're a pretty intelligent person. Have you ever thought of specializing? I said, Fred, what good is it going to do to specialize? If I specialize, I'm not going to be able to help these people with their everyday problems. And of course, at this point, Fred, Dr. Berg, was totally dumbfounded because Fred thought that my problem was how to earn a lot of money. I said, Fred, no, Fred, I don't have to earn a lot of money, Fred, because I didn't borrow any money to go to medical school. So, you know, if I don't earn a lot of money in medicine, money, it's okay. And Fred said, oh, this is what Jennifer, next semester, you're going you're gonna to learn about the cures and the good stuff. I said, okay. Now you know how this went, right? Semester after semester, I went back to Fred. And each time, Fred said, one more semester. Finally, graduation came, and I, I had no answers. Nobody was getting better. Now, my attitude when I entered medical school was that I was going into primary care, and I was going back to the ghetto, and I was going to take care of, of my neighbors, friends, relatives, and anyone else who cared to show up. Now, imagine... If I'd gone to medical school because I wanted to be a doctor, not because I wanted to heal, but because I wanted to be a doctor, and imagine that I had borrowed humongous sums of money to go. Imagine. I say humongous. I just mean enough where I had to figure out what my monthly payments were and how am I going to pay it back. I mean, I literally watched as students came in wanting to do family practice as the Debt burden grew as it grew as it grew. They ended up specializing. And then even the ones that stayed family practice, they started saying, ooh, I've got to figure out how to get a patient in and out in three minutes. I know. A colleague really said this. It's really happened. He said, I'm going to write a prescription for an antibiotic for each and every person, and that will get them out real quick. So the problem I came to medical school with was, 
how do I heal my friends, family, neighbors, and anyone else who shows up? That was my question that I entered medical school with. And so then each piece of information presented, I would ask myself, how is this going to heal this friend or that family member or that neighbor? Whereas if I go to medical school to specialize, I would say, oh, of course this stuff isn't working. That's okay. I'm specializing. And as a specialist, I'm going to fix all the failures of this basic therapy they're teaching in medical school. So, of course, the more of it that fails, the better, because I'm specializing, and it'll just be more work for me to fix. And then so there's no need for any deeper thinking on it. And there's no need to feel troubled about it. So then what happens is you have this group of students, in my case, 162 students in the medical school class. And literally 75% of them are just going through the four years of medical school so they can get to the real training, which is after medical school, in their residency, where they're going to learn to fix all those things that regular doctors, generally practice doctors, were taught in medical school that was, of course, erroneous. Unfortunately, <laughs> they failed to account for the real probability that the same folks writing their medical school curriculum might be writing their specialty curriculum, and the specialty curriculum might be equally ineffective. But they never, no, no one ever, never went that deep. So you have really 75% of students that don't even concern themselves with this. Their mind stays at a superficial level where it's kind of split across the top like one of those little flies on the water with uh, little air bubbles under their feet. They just kind of skid along the surface, never thinking any more deeply about it. So here I was in medical school every day feeling deeply troubled and wanting to know how are we going to get to the truth of this? How was I going to get to something that was going to be helpful for patients? And then here's the bigger, here's, here's the clincher, here's the clincher. Two months, maybe three months into medical school, that's when things are getting to be just a little bit suspicious. It's like, well, these guys, looks like they're kind of hitting the mark, missing the mark a few times here. And how are uh, students in? Sit us down and say, you know what? We've worked very hard in the medical school curriculum, but 50% of everything you're learning is false. We just don't know which 50%. So we're going to teach you all of it. 50% of what they're teaching is false. If you ask me, that's a pretty high miss rate. Half of everything is false. And then immediately it goes through my mind, or anyone's mind would be, well, I'll just sift right through this and I'll just get to the stuff that's true and use that. And then they say, and every four years, another 50% will be false. Well, so obviously, after 12 years, you've only got, you know, 88, you only got 12% that's true. 
for the first four years, you know, 50% through. Second four years, you got 25% is true. Next four years, you got 12.5% is true. So in 12 years, only 12.5% of what I learned in medical school would be true. And so they said, then it's important for you to, con- to engage, fully engage in continuing medical education and to soak up every single morsel of information that comes out of research. And by the way, the only reliable sources, New England Journal of Medicine, Journal of American Amer- Medical Association, and possibly the journal of your specialty that you choose to specialize in. That's it. Those are three things, three journals that are reliable. The rest, don't believe it. Six o'clock news, not, can't, can't rely on the six o'clock news. The internet, any magazine your patients might be reading, unreliable. Anything you might observe, unreliable. Because you only observe a small number of patients. The experts have observed large numbers and they know what's really going on. So even if your observation indicates to you that something's not working, you need to understand that statistically, if you keep doing it, it will work. Okay. That sounded pretty good. Then I came across this on the Internet. This is written um, by Sarah Tycholt, a medical student, at 6.27 a.m. It's pretty early to get up on December 14, 2013. And what did she write? Half of what you're learning is wrong. They're still teaching medical students that half of everything you're learning is wrong. They haven't found any better source of information than what they had when I was going to school. So this is, uh, this is shocking. But it gets better. Okay, so now you've got at least 75% of the medical school class thinking on a superficial level. They're not going any deeper because they know they're going to get the real stuff after medical school. All they do in medical school is just memorize and spit it back. No problem. Then you have the 25% that are going into primary care, like myself. Maybe they're going into internal medicine. Maybe they're going into family practice. Or maybe they're just going to do a one-year rotating and then just hit the streets and take care of people. But this 25%, another 80%, which would be 20 of the 25%, they have such burdensome debt that they're trying to figure out how to create that ideal three-minute office visit that they need to create in order to pay off their loans. So you have at best a small 5% of the medical school class focused on does this stuff really work and what am I going to uh, tell my patients? How am, I, how am I going to help anybody? So what happened then is going is Going into medical school, the question is, how can I heal? Coming out, the question is, one, how can I pay my loans? And two, how can I, how can I live far enough away from the people I'm mutilating that I will be safe? Every city has a doctor neighborhood. There's a reason for that. Because if the doctors lived among the regular people that they were harming, mutilating, and maiming, they might not live very long. So then we have now a shell game. And the shell game is this. That you have a bunch of stuff, 50% of which is fake, 50% of which is true. Now, because you have the standard of care, the doctor is not free to select which 50% he believes to be false. Get that. So a doctor can, due to his observation, maybe his belief system, whatever, has determined 
by whatever criteria he decides to use, that somebody's absolutely no doubt about it false. He's got he's convinced. He's not free to select to stop doing that because he's got to stick to the standard of care. And so he's got this puzzle, he's got this conflict. And conflict actually has nothing to do with the patient, unfortunately. At least if that's something to do with the patient, you could say, all right, it's a conflict related to the patient. No. If he continues to do this thing that he knows to be false because he's seen that every time he does it, the patients die or bad things happen, if he keeps doing this thing, the good news is he gets paid. But, of course, the patients become mutilated, damaged, disabled, and they die. If he continues to do this thing that he knows to be false, because he's following the standard of care. But let's say he says, my conscience will not allow me to mutilate and murder. And he decides he's going to stop doing this thing because he believes it to be false. Ho, ho, ho. Then the patient doesn't die, but then the patient can sue him for not following the standard of care. Or even worse than the patient suing, because quite frankly, one, it's a long shot. And two, even if he loses, the insurance company pays, he doesn't. But the third possibility, which is devastating, which is he could lose his job and not find another job. Or if he's self-employed, he could lose his license. And now we have in the United States what we call reciprocity. That's called blackballing. That means if you lose your license in one state, all the other states uh, will prohibit you from practicing as well. So here's a doctor, and this is a choice, a choice he's got to face. And we don't even reach to the point of his duty to the patient as a human being. It's not even mentioned. It's not, it's not, it's not a consideration. This is all kept on a very abstract uh, financial administrative level, which is just devastating for, for, for patients. So when you have doctors who are following the standard of care, they see their patients are dying. They see their patients are being mutilated. They see they're not getting better. And they're thinking to themselves, this might be part of that 50% that's false, but I don't know because there's research. So each medical student then, and even each doctor now, they're in their mind, they're saying, I'm going to pick the specialty that has the highest percent of accuracy, the highest percent of benefit. So some people will perceive that if I go into ophthalmology, I'm going to do good because it was a cataract, the person can't see, I've got to take the cataract out and they're going to see better. And what they don't understand is the eye drops that they give the patients for their glaucoma or after surgery cause things like total body rashes, arthritis, hypertension, heart disease, devastating, devastating health effects. But all this, this, the young doctor sees is, as an ophthalmologist, he can clip out that cataract and everything's fine. Now, the other thing specialists see is maybe I can specialize in that one little sliver, that one little sliver of stuff I feel or know to be beneficial. The fallacy in that, of course, is when you specialize that narrow, now you've got to do the procedure on people who don't even need the procedure. And then, of course, those people incur the complications with no possible chance of benefit, of course, because they didn't need the procedure in the first place. And so 
What happens then is the focus of the well-meaning pre-medical student, now medical student, now doctor becomes perverted. Again, the focus changes not to healing the patient, but managing the patient. And managing the patient in such a way as to maintain their licensure and pay their debt. Notice, at no point is anything mentioned about patient outcomes. And so at no point is a doctor under any pressure, whatever, to consider patient outcomes. It's just not a consideration. So I think teaching something where half of all the all the information is false is is uh, you know it, it's reprehensible, it's uh, unacceptable, unreasonable. But that's just my opinion. Again, you see, I'm not on the faculty of the medical school. But let's take a look at the other piece of this: the information that doctors rely on, the research. The research and then there's research. So let's take a look at the broad demographic research. Demographic research means you take a look at the total population, you look at their characteristics, um, and you draw some conclusions. So you don't look at each individual person. You look at trends and patterns, whatever. Okay. So when I was pre-med, I was at Harvard, I wanted to know, because things were going really good, I was getting great grades, it was clear to me I was going to get into medical school. So I needed to know was as a medical student, or as a doctor, actually, how could I improve people's length of life and quality of life? I also wanted to know, what were my chances? What, what was the percent impact I could have? So I went to the medical school library. Widener Library, World Famous Library, Google it, uh, on campus at uh, Harvard. And I looked up healthcare, health and healthcare. Healthcare improving health, healthcare improves health. I couldn't find a single reference that actually said that healthcare improves health. But I did find references that said that healthcare, having unlimited access to healthcare, had zero impact, zero positive impact on improving health. So if you have unlimited access to healthcare, it will not improve your health or your length of life. So it will not improve your quality of life or your length of life. You can imagine, here I was, absolutely crushed. I was crushed. Because here I was, a junior uh, at Harvard, about to, uh, you know, apply to medical school and, and, and get accepted. Or I think I actually gone through a couple steps in the process. Maybe I'd taken my exams and got good grades on them or something like that. Well, this bothered me, that the impact of healthcare was zero. There was no, no evidence that having health care impacted length of life or quality of life. So the next thing I asked, well, what did? What did? Well, clean water. Ask the folks in Africa wrestling with Ebola. So clean water, clean food, adequate shelter, clean air. That's it. That's what helps people live longer. Nothing. Nothing was mentioned about a doctor with a good bedside manner. So I decided, based on that, that I should not borrow any money to get through medical school because it's entirely possible that what they were teaching was not worth 10 cents. So that's the big picture. What about the little picture? 
Well, doctors are told to rely on research. So let's take a look at research. Now, research, we're going to go to uh, Medscape News. And this is the news they, they need to see. They send to doctors, okay? So this is, this is from the doctor's site itself, www.medscape.com forward slash view article forward slash 831439. So you can get it yourself. That's the reference. So when researchers so data reanalysis changes 35% of trial conclusions. Let me put that in English. When you look at the data in a clinical trial, that's a research experiment, reanalysis of that data changes the conclusions or creates a conclusion different from the one that's published at least 35% of the time. And I can tell you this is definitely the case. Because when I go and read these medical research articles, I'll read the article, flip to the data page, go through the data, look at what the data says, and then I'll read the conclusion. I'm like, whoa, this conclusion is not supported by that data. Now, that is that's a shocker. That is a shocker. It's like, well, what do you do when something like that happens? Usually, at least, they sift through the data and present the data that supports their conclusion and withhold the other data that doesn't support the conclusion, at least you have to ask for that data. But now you read a lot, well, I read, you know, I read quite a few research articles that Pearson's radio shows, and I'll read the article, and the data in the article does not support the conclusion. It happens a lot. And to say it's only 35% is very generous. I would honestly say it's more often than that, but that's okay. We're going to take the doctor perspective at Medscape Family Family Medicine. We're going to take their numbers. So what do they say? It says when researchers reanalyze patient-level data from randomized controlled trials, this is the gold standard, the trial outcomes change in approximately one of three cases. According to a study published in the September 10th issue, this is, you know, latest stuff, 2014, of the Journal of the American Medical Association. This is one of those journals that doctors were told to believe, yes. And so the journal that doctors are told to believe is saying that at least 35% of the, re- of the journal articles published are not believable. All right. Well, that would certainly lead to a 50% error rate, don't you think? So of this 35%, of the reanalysis produced results that were significantly different from the initial analysis. And they go on to minimize the impact and say, well, we're not going to worry too much about it. So the most common difference between the newer analysis and the initial one was a change in statistical or analytical methods, followed by changes in the definition or measurement of outcomes, how missing data were handled, and the use of intention-to-treat study population. Four of the reanalyses addressed errors in the initial publication. Okay. So basically what they're saying is there are many levels of manipulation. And so we have uh, somebody from Yale University, of course, commenting on this. And the study authors and the editorialists acknowledge that although not everyone is enthusiastic about more open data policies, there have been some hopeful efforts in that direction from academic and commercial groups. So they're admitting to doctors that 35% of the research that the standard of care is based on, that uh, doctor practices are based on, is basically fundamentally unreliable. That's huge. 
And then we have a, another article. And this, is another, this one is really important because in this one, the clinician or the uh, editorial writers says it ain't necessarily so. Why much of the medical literature is wrong. And this is, this is huge. Much of the medical literature is wrong. And so many people will say to me, well, Dr. Daniels, is there some research supporting what you're saying? Because I'm a scientific person, and I base all of my decisions, whether natural or medical, on research. I don't even know what to say to a person like that. You know, you almost have to give your condolences in advance because you know where that's going. But I would say you have to. You've got to base a substantial amount of your conclusions on your own observations. I mean, I would like to sit here and say to you, oh, believe me, I'm right all the time. No, you believe your body, you believe what you see, you believe what you experience. You believe what you see and what you experience, not what you hear. And you'll be right more often than a lot of people around you. You'll certainly be right more often than, your, than any doctor, for sure. I mean, someone pulling your information from a pool that's avowedly 50% false, you know, is... is uh, it is unreliable. And so here this guy says, uh, it ain't necessarily so why so much of medical literature is wrong. And this is Christopher Labs, I'm sorry, Labos. He's a medical doctor. And, um, oh, there's disclosures at the end. Why don't we skip to the end and read the disclosures? The disclosures are very, very important. So the question you might ask is how all of a sudden is all this information available on how medical information is just not that accurate. Why is all this information uh, suddenly becoming available? Oh, they don't show his disclosures. Okay. Um, many of these articles that I'm reading, the disclosure is that the person writing them is an employee of an insurance company. So now the insurance companies, especially with the Obama uh, plan or the Affordable Health Care Act, the insurance companies have a lot of uh, risk, so to speak. In order to make profit, they've got to control doctor behaviors. So now they're putting out these articles to help influence doctor behaviors. And so with this doctor, um, another doctor, Dr. Fiona Godley, summed up in her British Medical Journal editorial on evidence-based medicine, it's a flawed system, but still the best we've got. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. That is a pretty, uh, you know, flippant attitude because when a doctor, when a patient walks into the doctor's office, the patient has, does have one thing: he's got his life. And to ask him to gamble with his life because it's the only crap table in town is is absurd. Because obviously, he can just choose not to gamble. I mean, like, huh? All right, so what's the problem? Why is so much of medical literature wrong? And I agree with this guy, by the way, because I found this myself. Reverse causality. This is huge. And they, they put it in such boring terms that it could just make you cry. Given the association between X and Y, it is actually equally likely that Y causes X or X causes Y. And actually, of course, it's not equally likely. Um, if you stop and think about something and you look at the sequence of occurrence, which one happens first, there's many ways to deduce whether X causes Y or Y causes X. For example, we're told in medical school 
that clogged blood vessels. I'm sorry, that hypertension causes clogging of blood vessels. That's not true. Absolutely patently false. The person is filled with toxins, chemicals, and sludge. These toxins, chemicals, and sludge are stored in the blood vessel, clogging the blood vessel up. Then the heart has got to pump harder to get blood through these blood vessels. And so, of course, the blood vessel being clogged is the first step. Then the heart reacts by raising the blood pressure so blood can get to the kidneys and the brain. But by telling the doctor, by reversing the causality, then that tells you that the blood pressure is the problem, not that getting blood to the brain or getting blood to the kidney is the problem. And reversing the causality then leads the doctor to use drugs to lower the blood pressure, meanwhile not treating the blocked circulation, and actually decreasing the circulation of blood to the brain and to the kidney, making the person's underlying disease worse. And this is why proper treatment of hypertension does not extend life expectancy. And this has been studied by real doctors, not me, by licensed doctors, and they said, yep, life expectancy is not improved by treating hypertension according to standard of care. So reverse causality, that is huge. That's a big one. And so they uh, say, consider a study published in the New England Journal of Medicine. That's the big one. That's the gold standard. That's top of the heap. That showed an association between diabetes and pancreatic cancer. The casual reader might conclude that diabetes causes pancreatic cancer. However, further analysis shows that much of the diabetes was of recent onset. The pancreatic cancer preceded the diabetes, and the cancer subsequently destroyed the insulin-producing cells of the pancreas. Therefore, this is not the case of diabetes causing pancreatic cancer, but of pancreatic cancer causing diabetes. So this is a very blatant example. Next, the play of chance and the dice miracle. Whenever a study finds an association between two variables, there's always the possibility that the association was simply the result of random chance. And this happens a lot, a lot. Uh, and as a practicing doctor, I saw this so many times. For example, um, a study is done, and you give a 1,000 women hormone replacement therapy. Of the 1,000 women, 300 benefit. You take, the, well, actually, five, they say 500. Let's, say, let's, give, let's be generous and say 500 benefit. We won't even say what benefit is. We'll take their word for it. So 500 benefit. So you take these 500 who benefit, and then you have the 500 who didn't benefit, and you check marital status, how often do they have sex, uh, how tall are they, how much do they weigh, are they overweight, how much money do they make. Well, measure anything you want. Let's say the difference between those factors between the two groups. When you tell the doctor, these women who are married, who have sex only twice a week, no more, no less, they're the ones who are most likely to benefit from the use of this drug. As if your marital status 
or frequency of intercourse determine the likelihood of benefiting from that drug? Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. We don't know. And so this type of retrospective research analysis and correlation means that we doctors got information that went something like this. Women who have more children uh, benefit. And women who have fewer adult children benefit. And women... And women who have an income level below XYZ benefit. And so what happened then is you get all the conflicting parameters to use in order to decide what patient in your population is really going to benefit from this drug. And so then you take the association, which may be random, and you call it A, causality, or B, you call it a real association, that these two factors travel together. And so we call these then risk factors. And so then a lot of risk factors, cholesterol is an excellent one, um, the correlation between what you're treating and the treatment outcome is it's almost non-existent. And so um, you have a, a cholesterol, a whole cholesterol industry built up on something, elevated cholesterol, that if treated properly with cholesterol-lowering medications will result in one person in every 1,250 benefiting from the therapy. Why? Because of the very same logic, the play of chance. Next, oh, this is, this is cute, the frequency of false positives. Now, this guy goes into great details. He's got these boxes and stuff, and then mean you could get your eyes crossed and get dizzy and blurry, totally confused and fall asleep. Bottom line is this. If the frequency of false, even a low frequency of false positives is devastating and can lead to a total uh, false positive or the percent of total positives can be 95%. Why? Because the frequency of true positives is so low. So when we say the frequency of true positives is so low, true positive means that given that you do a test, the positive result indicates the disease in question. So if you have a test that's 99.9% positive, I mean, someone in the general public would say, oh, my God, that's, a, that's, a, that's an accurate test. I'm going to get that test. What if you're testing for an illness that doesn't exist in that population? Then 100% of those positive results are going to be false positives, even though it's 99.99% accurate. So you only get a positive one in 1,000 times, but it's always going to be a false positive. And this is the danger of the Ebola testing in the United States. Maybe they claim the test is accurate, but if you give the accurate test, which has false positives, to a population where the disease does not exist, then every positive will be a false positive. And so false positives as a percent of total positives can be as high as 100%. Very interesting. So frequency of false positives is huge. And the big deal about that is a published frequency of 99.99% accurate or 99.9% accurate 
It sounds good, but in practice, it's atrocious. It's absolutely atrocious. So what else could go wrong? <laughs> Bias, coffee, cell phones, and chocolate. <laughs> Bias occurs when there's no real association between two variables, but one is manufactured because of the way we conducted our study. And this is a very sad example that they give. This, I think, is absolutely tragic. So uh, an example was they randomized these uh, patients, some to get open surgery and some to get laparoscopic uh, removal of their gallbladders. And so what happened then was the um, residents on call could only do an open gallbladder surgery without the attending being present. So what they would do then is they would go through the envelopes, hold them up to the light, and do the open surgeries on the ones who were randomized to the open surgery group and let the closed ones sit till morning and not get any surgery. So that created a bias in terms of which group had the worst outcome. Um, so that's really, really bad. And actually, that's a confounding error. So if there is an association between X and Y, but the magnitude of that association is influenced by a third variable. third variable was the resident's desire to do surgery unsupervised. And so then the example of the bias is a selection bias. So the selection bias can occur when controls are recruited into the study. Control group had a high incidence of pelvic ulcer disease and so as not in cancer was artificially created because the control group was fundamentally different from the general population with coffee. And so there's a lot of biases introduced into studies. And all these things this, this um, person, Dr. Labels, mentioned, uh, the biases, the confounding variables, the reversal of causality. The forthright manner. Now, I'm using some euphemism there, but basically due to people actually lying and manipulating data. And so this is why 800,000 doctors, I'm sorry, 700,000 doctors can actually intentions. And of course, it gets worse. A lot of people are worried about cancer. I would tell anybody to stop worrying about cancer. <laughs> it makes you think of a joke. I won't tell the joke, though. Solution to the United States cancer care crisis is less cancer care. Now, we can just read the headline, and I can tell you the rest of the story. Now, they, they put it, they're, they're, you know, glossing this up and dressing it up. But basically, the crisis in cancer care is that most people who are diagnosed with cancer, one, don't need therapy because they don't really have cancer, and two, the care they get is not especially helpful. And what this article says is cancer may not really be that important and may not need to be treated. So they're really, really tiptoeing around this. And... Uh, so you have then 
doctors therapies on profoundly unreliable, unreliable uh, information. One, give a question, and I can take questions now. There's a few minutes left, yeah, 12 minutes left. Let me go check the chat room. Chat room is Number is 914-338-0695. And we're trying to sort out why 800,000 doctors are more All right, audio hiccups, they say. Hi, you're on the air. Your name and your question, please. Yes, this is Sherry, and I'm in Oregon. Um, I remember in one of your articles or what I was yes. reading in your website that your insurance, that you're um, agreeing to being monitored and so on and so forth, and we're just kind of experiencing some of that. But what if you, like I fell, I'm almost 70, and thought I broke my hip, uh-huh. what would I do in situation like that if I didn't have insurance. So that's kind of my concern because I want to get out of insurance. I want to get out of Medicare, but it kind of scares me getting older. And so I'm very interested in doing your uh, turpentine treatment with sugar. And so I'm working on... Sorry? Okay, so the thing to do would be to, um, you know, have your, your kids come, lift you up, put you back to bed, and if you could stand it, have them straighten your leg out. The next thing to do, the question is, have one of the kids get on the phone, call around to the hospital and say, hey, mom broke her hip. Um, how much would it cost for you to, uh, to, to fix it? And call the doctors and say, you know what, we pay cash. And you're going to get a price that's going to be anywhere from half to a quarter what the regular price would be. Yes. And it'll yeah, be a lot we... cheaper than had you paid health insurance premiums. Ah, okay. Good answer. Because we ran into that when we didn't have insurance and went in. We were shocked at how little it cost. Thank you, doctor. Mm-hmm. 